You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, we are thankful for your word. Help us now to understand it, to see your glory, to love Christ, and to love you more. We pray these things in Jesus' name for your sake. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you all this evening. Hope you're recovered from Thursday. I could eat Thanksgiving food like breakfast. Well, maybe not breakfast, but lunch and dinner for like three weeks straight. Uh, with the coming of Thanksgiving, you are all now, I hereby declare, legally allowed to listen to Christmas music. Uh, I. I know that there are some hardliners out there who say like you have to wait till like the first Sunday of Advent, which is next Sunday. Uh, and there are a few of you who are psychopaths and started listening to Christmas music at Halloween. But uh, don't do that. Uh, anyway, I love this time of year, the music, the TV, the traditions, all of it. Uh, and we'll have much to think through, through all of it over the next four Sundays of Advent together. By the way, we're planning on going through the four traditional themes of Advent, peace, joy, hope, and love, through Paul's magnum opus of Romans 8 together. Four Sundays through that wonderful chapter. We'll begin that next week. Anyway, what Christmas thing that I know a lot of people really get into, but I don't, it's not really my jam, is like the Hallmark Christmas movie. Uh, in just scrolling through Netflix this week, it appears that this is, the market is so hot for these things that Netflix just decided, I actually saw this, Netflix had an algorithm write the plot and script of a Christmas movie. It's like the, the, the princess switch or something like that. Uh, it's a, an entirely algorithm written movie. You should watch it. I, maybe you shouldn't, but I don't know. Uh, I don't think I'm being too smug in saying that this genre of movie is like just way formulaic, right? That you know exactly what you're getting. In fact, you can like probably look at the cover art on Netflix and know exactly what's going to happen just from one still picture. Uh, but you know what you're getting in these kinds of movies and many people really like them. These kind, the formula makes you warm and fuzzy so you keep going back to them over and over and over again. I do love a good romantic comedy from time to time, but what makes a story a bit more compelling is if you don't know what's around the corner, if you don't know what's coming, if it breaks the formula, if you're left guessing and then even surprised by what's coming next. The most emotional moments tend to come when you don't see them coming. 
Well, if you just finished reading 1 Timothy 1, you sat down and read the whole chapter. You thought deeply through Paul's encouragements to teach sound doctrine, for uh, him to encourage Timothy to stop the wrong teaching that's going on in Ephesus. And if there were a so-called like Paul formula for how he wrote letters, what might we expect to come next? Like he's just said that he handed two likely former elders over to Satan in the verses before. Hope you didn't miss last week. Uh, But Paul did this out of love both for these men and for the church. But what might come next? If you were trying to guess, what might we expect Paul to open chapter 2 with? Maybe more instructions for Timothy of what he should be teaching. Maybe some more reflection on the Old Testament, like a few paragraphs on Moses or on Abraham or something. What actually comes next might be kind of surprising. If you're reading for the first time or for the first time in a while, you probably didn't see the first couple verses of chapter 1 coming, or of chapter 2. First of all, he says, Then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. But while it might feel initially surprising, this section is just a continuation of Paul's worshipful reflection of what the gospel has done in chapter 1. Tonight we'll see him encourage prayer for the kind of circumstances that allow the glory of the gospel to advance. And then in future weeks we'll see him describe the kind of behavior, the kind of leaders, the kind of leadership structures that are most consistent with the gospel throughout chapters 2 and 3. And then he'll return to personal instructions for Timothy in leading the church in purity and in the gospel throughout the rest of the book. But in this first half of chapter 2, Paul, perhaps surprisingly to where we've come from, but not surprisingly, if you know Paul, he has the universal scope of the gospel in view here. It's like Paul has seen the kingdom of heaven begin its invasion of grace, and, and then in the kingdom of this earth, and then he's just like blown away by the scope at which God seems to be moving with this gospel. So our section for tonight is short, just seven verses, but the scope is immeasurable. So let's spend a few more minutes together to to let God's word percolate down deeper and deeper into deeper nooks and crannies together and change us. We'll think through this in three sections. Prayer for all, a ransom for all, and an apostle for all. So again, in verses one and two, Paul says, first of all, Timothy, and by proxy Ephesian church, and by proxy you, Christ church, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. If I were to ask us, what do we think most of us, as Americans, might tend toward gravitating toward in, that, in those first two verses. What, what's the emphasis that Paul is trying to get us to get towards? I think most of us probably would gravitate towards a, a, a peaceful and a quiet life. I want to be bothered as little as possible. I want to live how I'd like, worship how I'd like, spend my money how I'd like, Netflix how I'd like. And if there's a threat that there's some government out there who's going to start taking away my rights and my freedoms, well, then we should just pray that government away. 
But I'm not sure that that's exactly what Paul is getting after here. Remember, the scope of this entire first section of this chapter is universal. So just look through all of the alls and everys in those verses that you heard Stephanie read. That prayer is to be made for all people, for all who are in high positions. That we might lead godly and dignified lives in every way, which will please God who desires all people to be saved. Since Christ Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all which Paul is preaching because God has not just sent him as an apostle, apostle to the Jews, but to the Gentiles, meaning the entirety of the world. So a peaceful and quiet life isn't necessarily the end game that Paul is praying toward, that that's the goal. No, the goal of all of that and the means through which it comes is the gospel spread to the entire world. So how is the gospel most easily spread? Well, when there's no government interference and opposition, persecution. I've begun to see some Christians seemingly like welcoming a more opposed culture and an opposed government perhaps, hostile to the things of the gospel, that with persecution there becomes a thinning of who the real Christians are and like the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church and all that stuff. And all that's true, but we should never pray for persecution or opposition. Many of you have heard the story of when in 1792, William Carey was preparing to leave England and take the gospel, perhaps for the first time, or at least in many centuries, to India. And Carey and his less famous friend, Andrew Fuller, started the Baptist Missionary Society. And before leaving, Carey told Fuller, I will go down into the dark, but you must hold the rope. He's saying, you... You here staying in England, you, my friends, must hold the rope while I go to this place. Well, Carrie was busy preaching and interpreting the Bible into 34 different languages and dialects in India. Fuller was tirelessly traveling around the British Isles, preaching on missions, raising money, raising awareness for what Carrie was doing in India, raising awareness about the unreached. And the reason that Carrie was able to go, but then more importantly, to stay, was because his friend, William Fuller, or Andrew Fuller, was staying in a culture that was not openly hostile towards the gospel. He was allowed to be in a country that was holding the rope for Carrie. A culture that allowed for a peaceful and quiet life. Christians should still advocate for religious liberty and freedom, if for no other reason than to just hold the rope. For sending people sending missions agencies and missionaries, equipping local Christians and indigenous Christians around the world and supporting them. But for Paul, the prayer and end goal isn't freedom that we just get to worship however we'd like. Freedom for freedom's sake or something. But that in our worship, we might move toward others with the gospel without fear. An isolated life that can't be bothered by the outside world is not the kind of peaceful and quiet life that Paul has in mind. Like, what good is Daniel's life of quiet prayer in his house if he also isn't living in and amongst the Persians and the Babylonians? If he's teaching them and talking about the God of Israel. Yes, he's alone in his house and praying, but he's doing so in an outwardly public way. The actual kind of quiet and peaceful life, though, shouldn't be expected. In the history of the church, the last several hundred years of American Christianity has been an extraordinarily rare time. 
It's even rare compared to the church worldwide today. I still think when we meet our brothers and sisters in glory from across time and geography, they'll ask, hey, like, when was your mortal life? And you'll be like, it was in America in the 20th and 21st century. And they'll be like, oh, cool. Like, the safest time for Christians in the history of existence. How was that? That was a good time, huh? Now, again, that's not to say that we should pray against that kind of safety and comfort, but that it would be naive of us to just assume that it's going to continue forever. I think some of us can have an overly heightened martyr complex like the Babylon Bee who satirically wrote just recently that a local man fully now knows what it's like to be a Christian in China because a local cashier said happy holidays to him rather than Merry Christmas. <laughs> Identify with the persecution that our brothers and sisters are, under, are going through in China now. But nevertheless, opposition to the gospel should not surprise us. Remember from last week that God has permitted the rule of this world for a time to be given to Satan, the dark spiritual powers who will stop at nothing to denigrate, to marginalize, to stop altogether the fame of Christ. And so our first inclination should not necessarily be to reactively pull out our phone and start posting on Facebook all of, the, all of the places in town that say happy holidays, like to start this citywide Christian boycott against them or something. But rather than reactively, proactively and regularly, Paul is urging us that supplications, that prayers, that intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people. Proactively, not just in surprised anger when we encounter what is actually or supposed to be, supposed to be on our part, actual opposition to the gospel. Now, scholars throughout the centuries have tried to distinguish the four kinds of different prayers that Paul names here. Maybe the best being supplications, being making requests for specific needs, prayers being bringing those in view before God, intercessions, appealing boldly on their behalf, and thanksgivings, just that being just that, prayers of thankfulness and thanksgiving. But the point isn't on the specific kinds of prayers, but more that all kinds of prayers should be made for all kinds of people, for everyone. When Paul says elsewhere to pray continually, some of us might think, how do you even do that? Like, I'm so distracted. Well, one way to cultivate a more continual prayer life is to just start praying for all of the kinds of people that are just coming across your path, even if it's a half of a sentence and a half of a second at a time. Whether it's the man on the corner or President Trump, as Paul tells us to pray here for kings and all those who are in high positions. And again, before you think, well, Paul didn't know Trump, or Paul didn't know Obama, or Paul didn't know the city council or our mayor. You're right. He just knew countless, countless city leadership who kept throwing him out of the city and beating him. <laughs> he knew emperors like Caligula, Claudius, and Nero who were killing Christians en masse. Paul is saying that those are the very kinds of rulers that we ought to be praying for. Ryan modeled very well for us how to pray for these governmental leaders. In the second century, Clement of Rome prayed, prayed this for the rulers and governors that he encountered. Listen to this. He, he prayed, grant to them, Lord, health, peace, harmony, stability, that they may blamelessly administer the government which you have given them. He's praying this for hostile Roman emperors. 
Lord, direct their plans according to what is good and pleasing in your sight, so that by devoutly administering in peace and gentleness the authority which you have given them, they may experience your mercy. Like, when's the last time you prayed something like that for President Trump, or for Mayor Keller, or for the Chinese government, or for Vladimir Putin? If you find it difficult to pray for a person because of your disdain for them, well, just just start. Just start praying. And I think that you'll find that it becomes very difficult to hate people whom you're praying for. A God word and gospel-transformed life is already a counter-cultural life. And we should actually pray that our governments and cultures allow us to gather, allow us to pray, allow us to assemble and worship how we'd like, that we might live lives, as Paul says at the end of verse 2, that are godly, that are dignified in every way. And that word godly in many older translations was often translated with another word that we very rarely use today. I think a lot of people think of this word as kind of a bad word, but it's pious. Many older translations said that we might be able to live lives that are pious and dignified in every way. That it's clear to the unbelieving world around us that we actually think that God is real. And that our lives are submitted to him in every way. Now I know that there are still lots and lots of Christians in this country. Lots and lots of Christians still in this city. But seriously, still one of the most countercultural, godly, pious dignified thing that you might be able to do regularly and publicly is to just stop and pray and give thanks before eating a meal at a restaurant. Like true piety is never just an outward show, but it is consistent. So if you take a moment to thank God for a meal in your own home, taking a moment to say this is not something that is to be necessarily expected and that you're meeting my demands, but this is a good gift from you, God. If you do that in your own home, then it would perhaps be consistent to still do that in public, wherever we are. And one beneficial outcome is that non-believing folks can see there are actually still people out there that believe in the unseen, that deny the immediacy of the appetite I don't think we're in danger of being arrested if we pray at Chili's anytime soon. But we ought to pray for the continued conditions in our culture that may see our lives of piety. And there's much, much more to think on through that. Living outward lives of good works and piety throughout the rest of this book. So we have many weeks to think through that. But again, why should we pray for peace? So that no one bothers us? No, but for the spread of the gospel. So we first offer prayer for all because second, Jesus has come for, as a ransom for all. Verse three, Paul says, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Now let's be honest, a lot of you probably perked up when you heard Stephanie read verse 4 and you began thinking about your own theology of salvation or you began thinking, oh, I wonder what Nathan's going to say about this verse. After all, we said last week that when someone becomes a Christian, it's only because God initiates and overpowers spiritual opposition and spiritual death in that person. He brings life, he brings repentance, he brings faith. 
But if God desires all people to be saved, it sure more, it sure looks like more that he wants spiritual life for every human being, and it's more up to every person just to decide if they want it or not. Well, it might help us to consider that God can desire something and for him not to will it to happen. We're told all over the Bible of the things that God desires for us. Like in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says that the will of God for our lives, something that he desires for all humans, is that we abstain from sexual immorality. Because God desires something on one level doesn't necessarily mean that he will bring it to pass into in actuality. Another reflection might help us in thinking that God doesn't take pleasure in the judgment of those who are opposed to him. He says in Ezekiel 18 and 33 that he rather takes pleasure when people turn to him and live. But understanding that I've perhaps opened a can of worms for some of you and perhaps even haven't even begun to scratch the surface of some other theological questions and implications for others of you, I kind of don't want to because that's not the point of any of this. Paul isn't getting into a theology of salvation and sovereign election or the extent of the atonement or any of these issues like some of us like to stay up late, sitting around the fire, thinking about and talking with each other about. Remember what Paul is talking about here in this entire section, the universal scope of the gospel for all people. So when Paul says God desires all people to be saved in verse 4, I think, after reading as many commentaries as I could this week from as many centuries and continents as possible, I'm fairly confident that what Paul means is that there is not one nation, there is not a specific people, there's not a language on earth that is excluded from salvation. God desires to offer the gospel to all kinds of people without distinction. To the kind of Jewish person in this first century who is like, seeing the page of salvation history like turn over their very reality, the controversial part to them of this would be that God desires to save some people who are not Jewish. And so you had false teachers who were still emphasizing a particular Jewishness through myths and genealogies like we saw Paul confronting in chapter 1 or emphasizing a kind of asceticism, of removing yourself from eating certain kinds of foods, like we'll see in chapter 4, because they aren't clean or something. Even though at this point, after Christ, God has made all foods clean for all people. And so Paul, here in chapter 2, is throwing just a grenade of controversy, which isn't all that controversial to us, because we are all about fairness and inclusivity, that as it's always been throughout the history of God and his interaction with people, that he desires people of every tribe, every nation, every language and tongue to worship him. There's no division of races, who, some who know God and some who are prevented from knowing God. There's no bar of education that is required to see your need for Christ. There's not like a varsity team and a junior varsity team of the poor and the rich. There are no claims to superiority or inheritance between male and female, but that God desires all people, all kinds of people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, to make them all a unified body who can't say that it's their money that unites them or it's their shared interest in music or movies or books. 
It's not their degrees or their jobs that unite them. It's the costly blood of Christ that has bought their unity. Of a previously disunified people who, apart from Christ, might not have anything in common. And so this verse should not necessarily throw us down the rabbit hole of thinking through our theology of election or something. It ought to confront us and prod us out of only initiating, only moving towards friendship with people who are like us, who look like us, who merely enjoy the same kinds of things that I do. God desires not just people like you to come to a knowledge of him, but all kinds of people, people in this city who share very little with you and people on the other side of the globe who share even less with you. He desires all of them, all kinds of people to come to a knowledge of him. Why? Well, verse five, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. These verses show both the exclusivity of the gospel and the inclusivity of the gospel. Again, for the first century Jew, hearing that there is one God is not controversial at all. Every good Jewish boy and girl had said that very thing every morning and evening, every day of their life. Hear, O Israel, that the Lord your God is one. The fence of the gospel, that there is some who are in and some who are out, would not have been controversial. But that there was a wide open gate for all people, all kinds of people, that would have been the controversial part. To our modern ears, though, it's not that there's an open gate of those who are, it's the fact that there is a fence, a separation of those who are in or out, who know God or don't know God, which grates on our modern ears and sensibilities. Nevertheless, like we thought through in the Gospel of John, the surprising wonder of what God has done in Christ isn't that, wait, there's only one gate? Like, how can that be? Should be all kinds of ways to God. It's as we read the Bible and understand the blazing fire of God's holiness and glory, the surprise is, wait, there's a gate? He has made a way for us to be made right before him? And Paul says, yes, the mediator, the go-between of God and man, Jesus Christ. How? How does he mediate and why? Well, an Italian dude named Anselm wrote this about the year 1094. He says, salvation could not have been done unless man paid what was owing to God for sin. But the debt was so great, while man alone owed it, only God could pay it so that the same person must be both man and God. Thus, it was necessary for God to take manhood into the unity of his person, so that he, who in his own nature ought to pay and could not, should be in a person who could. You hear that? That we must pay the eternal debt of eternal sin against an eternal God. But eternal debt is far too great for mortal humanity to pay. Only God can pay it. So it had to be that God became man so that he, the only one capable of paying eternal debt, could pay it and represent us. That God himself would live and die 
as the mediator for his beloved creation because of their ambivalence toward him or their outright rejection of him, well, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew living in the first century in Alexandria or if you're a a Frenchman living in the fourth century or a tribesman living in Papua New Guinea in the 18th century or a college student living today in Shanghai or if you live in the South Valley or downtown or the Northeast Heights. It does not matter. Jesus has come to offer himself as a mediator for all kinds of people, for all of humanity. Humanity is the same categorically in our need. Kind of like when you, you watch a good alien movie, like Arrival or Independence Day, like at the end of these movies. Mike, stay with me here for a second, all right? This is going somewhere. At the end, like you see like how silly it is that humans are like the distinctions that they've made just based on geography or language, they're all together fighting the aliens, right? Uh, They're all the same. They're all in the same category of humanness. But in this story, we're not fighting against those who are outside of us. Those, the one outside of us has come to fight for us. The God-man shares and represents all of humanity. Doesn't matter when, doesn't matter where. And that God desires for the effects of this deep magic from before the dawn of time to be known, to be felt, to be experienced and accomplished for all kinds of people across the world and across time, giant, diverse swaths of all kinds of humans who now live in the joy of life with their king and with their father, praise be to God. What an incredible gospel this is. What an incredible God to come to initiate, to pursue all kinds of humans. And so Paul is urging Timothy to earnestly pray for the kinds of conditions where Jesus might be known more and more and more amongst more kinds of people amongst that Jesus might be named and worship again amongst more languages and he's implicitly challenging those who don't want this kind of unity in diversity he's encouraged us to offer a prayer for all because Jesus is a ransom for all and because of this lastly Paul has come as an apostle for all there's one reason here why I think this is what Paul is talking about when, he desi- when he's saying that God desires for all men to be saved. He is saying, Paul, that he is here for all kinds of people. Verse 7, he says, for this, for what? Well, well, the verses that come before it, that there is one God, that there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. So for that, for that reality of truth, Paul says, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Not that he needs to defend himself to Timothy, but Paul says that he's, he's absolutely telling the truth here. That in reality, a few years back, Jesus, who was formerly a dead man, buried in a hole, he came back to life and he confronted Paul on the road and made him one of his apostles, his authoritative sent ones. And the particular commission that Jesus gave to Paul was to teach and preach to people around the world who were not Jews. Along the way, every stop Paul made, it seems, he, he stopped and talked with people who were Jewish. 
Some, many of them becoming Christians just like the Jewish Paul did. But Jesus had sent Paul to fire the gospel through the walls of ethnic Judaism. That it might be received and heard and responded to amongst all kinds of people. Seeing the effects of what God had promised all those years ago in Genesis 12. That the seed of Abraham would be a blessing to all nations. While we don't share in Paul's office of being an apostle, we do share in his mission. Jesus left his disciples with a job, the Great Commission of Matthew 28, in which he told them, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. This is the daily job of every Christian. To either go or send people with the gospel to all nations. This is our first year of promoting the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, which gets every dollar that we give straight toward to our workers around the world on the field. The overwhelming majority of these workers now being in places where the gospel is not known at all. And we're doing great as a church. A little update here. We're about a third of the way towards our $15,000 goal this Christmas. So if you haven't sat down yet, you haven't looked over your budget, your end of the year finances, and thought through what might be a generous gift towards this Lottie Moon Christmas offering, towards sending and sustaining, towards holding the rope of those who are already around the world, would you consider doing that tonight? Would you consider every, every week uh, in our weekly email, in the last couple weeks, we've given the link uh, towards how you can give towards that offering. Same with looking through and considering at least one item that you might buy for those in poverty in the world, around the world in the Baptist Global Relief Catalog. We've got a couple of hard copies over here on the table. It's also a digital copy, copy in the weekly email. Just one thing, even as small as like a $3 thing of fish for those who might be able to start their own fish farm in impoverished places around the world. These are small ways that we can take part in the job of sending the saving gospel of Christ to all kinds of people to all nations. But also, our job in the Great Commission is not just toward going and sending toward the nations around the world, but toward those who are not like you in the very city in which you live. This is one reason why we have given our GCs and moving toward people, a particular group of people in the city who might be different than us or you, who might live in a different part of town who might even be from a different country, but who are living here now. The nations have come to us. And I know oftentimes these monthly times of service or outward movement can sometimes feel like a chore. Like, man, it'd be nice to just stay home tonight and watch another Christmas movie. Sometimes even just hanging out with our GC or staying home on Sunday evenings sometimes feels easier but God didn't accomplish salvation for us so that we could rest. Yes, rest in the finished work of Christ. Yes and amen. We don't try or work to earn our life in Christ. It is given freely to us. So rest freely in the luxurious love of God through Christ for you tonight. But God has not merely saved us from judgment, but he has saved us to life in him. He has saved us and given us a job. A job toward knowing him and making him known. 
And so on Wednesday night, our, our group will be helping out at a homework diner at a nearby elementary school. Many of you will be serving and getting to know folks uh, elsewhere in the city. The kind of quiet and peaceful life that Paul is urging us toward is not to be bummed out that, man, it's a night away from a peaceful family dinner or a night in front of the TV, but that we actually have the kind of peaceful and quiet lives that allow the extraordinary flexibility for us to take just one evening a month or so toward moving toward people with the love of Christ that God has moved toward us with, that he has changed our lives forever with. This is the kind of peaceful and quiet life that we ought to be praying for, that we have flexibility in our schedules to be moving toward one another and be moving toward others in our city with the gospel of Christ. What a God. What a gospel and what a job that God has given us together, individually and together. So let's pray Let's respond now in coming confidently in the finished work of Christ that we might rest in what he has done in his body and his blood. But then let's go out of here now with a renewed energy this week through the end of this year and on into 2019 with the great commission that God has given us in Christ. Our Father, we are thankful that you have appeared to us in the person of Jesus that you have shown us your character, you have shown us your glory, you have shown us your holiness, you have shown us your grace, your mercy, and your extraordinary love for us. Help us to rest. Help us to know you, to swim deeply in your great love for us as we experience you in your word, in praying, in just in interacting with and enjoying one another as your body here. But help us to, in the rest that we experience and know in Christ, now be renewed with greater energy that the same gospel that we have come to know and trust, the knowledge of you that we have, that we might not grow weary of making that known to others. That we might not just think towards sharing this gospel or moving towards others in friendship who are like us, but that we might, understanding what you have done for us, be more and more energized toward taking the gospel, towards sending the gospel, towards sustaining the gospel, towards those people who are not like us. Unify us, we pray, as this local body. Father, make us more diverse amongst your people here in this church. Make us to where a, the city might look at us and say, that doesn't make any sense. Why those people love each other like they do, except for what God has done in and through them. We pray that this might be so for your sake, and that the gospel might be known and trusted amongst all kinds of people. For your glory, we pray these things. In Jesus' name, amen. hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.